Acts chapter 1. It's page 1092, I think, in your pew Bible. Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Amen. Well, we uh, spoke last week, Palm Sunday, on the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem about 500 years before Jesus entered Jerusalem, the prophet Zechariah spoke these words. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. And so all those years later, God's King, Jesus, entered into Jerusalem uh, in humility, on a donkey, not to wage war, but to offer peace. Uh, this evening, I want to speak about another triumphal entry. I don't know if you knew that there were two triumphal entries in Scripture. I want to speak about the second of those triumphal 
entries. Again, we find it predicted in the prophets and portrayed for us in the New Testament. Uh, this time we go back to Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel dreams a dream. And in his dream, he has a vision of God himself. This is what he says. He says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Amen. Daniel, in his dream, sees God. And then one, like a son of man, is led into the presence of God, coming with the clouds, says Daniel. And he's given authority, he's given glory, he's given sovereign power. He is worshipped by people from every nation, and he is made to rule over a kingdom that will never be destroyed, that will never come to an end. There is a triumphal entry, if ever I have seen one. Jesus entering the very presence of God, taking his seat, as it were, at the Father's right hand to rule and to reign for all eternity. That's what the tri this triumphal entry looks like in Daniel's dream. That's what this triumphal entry looks like, as it were, from above. Luke, in the book of Acts, and actually at the end of his gospel, records the same scene from below. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, verse 9 of Acts 1, he was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid them, hid him rather, from their sight. 
Remember what Daniel had said? Uh, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Luke says, a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go. The ascension. He is risen and he has ascended. I've heard a fair few sermons on the resurrection in my time, but far fewer on the ascension. In fact, I'm struggling to think of one sermon that I have heard on the ascension. Not that I can complain because I'm struggling to think of one I've preached on the ascension. I don't think I have. We speak a lot about Christ crucified, as we should do. I don't think we speak as much about the resurrection of Christ as the apostles seemed to do, but we certainly speak about Christ's resurrection on Easter Sunday, at least. But we could easily go one or two or three or four years without hearing a sermon on Christ's ascension. I'm not sure why that is. Maybe we think it doesn't matter. Does it matter that Christ ascended? If we reflect on and rejoice in the fact that Christ was raised from death, is that enough? Maybe being raised from death is all that matters, and being raised to heaven doesn't add anything to our faith. Is that the case? I have a wee book Uh, by Tim Chester on the Ascension. It's very, very good. I I commend it to you. But this book starts with these words. It says, let's be honest, the Ascension of Jesus is weird. Let's be honest, the Ascension of Jesus is weird. The, the, The book picks up from there, I can assure you. But maybe that is why we tend to shy away from a subject. Maybe we think it's just too strange a picture. What will people think of us? That we believe in this picture of Jesus just kind of been lifted from the ground up into the clouds and into heaven. Maybe we kind of keep it to the side in the hope that people won't notice that it's there because it seems so strange, and we think people will think we are strange if we believe these things. And yet, it does matter, and it is good, and we should give thanks for the ascension. I want to spend two Sundays, two sermons, reflecting on why the ascension matters, why it's so important, what it adds to our faith, uh, and why we should be giving thanks to God for the ascension. The ascension of Jesus is good news. For a start, it's good for Jesus Himself. It is the true triumphal entry. It is 
God's vindication of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. What we tend to call the triumphal entry, the one we celebrate on Palm Sunday, looks very promising, but if you've followed the rest of the week through in your own devotional time this week, you'll have discovered that it didn't take long for things to go badly wrong. Promising start in Jerusalem, but it fast goes downhill, and by the end of the week, Rome has rejected Jesus, perhaps unsurprisingly. The Jews have rejected Jesus. Starts very promisingly with the crowds waving their branches and laying their coats before the Lord and crying, Hosanna to the Son of David. It starts very promisingly, but by the end of the week, there are no crowds showing their support to King Jesus. By the end of the week, the Jews have rejected Jesus. And even from within Jesus' own wee band of brothers, even from within the twelve, there is betrayal and there is desertion and there is denial. And then the most painful and most shameful of deaths on the cross. It looked like failure. A guy said this morning that, that light came into the world, but the world clung to darkness. Very true. The world's verdict on Christ was crystal clear. But in the end, the ascension reminds us that it's not the verdict of the world that matters ultimately. It's the verdict of God that matters ultimately. Only one voice, only one verdict, really, truly, and eternally counts and that is God's voice, God's verdict. And the ascension shows us how much God approves of Jesus' earthly ministry. God the Father lifts Jesus to the place of highest honor. The ascension has been called Jesus' vindication, Jesus' exaltation, and Jesus' coronation. Not only raised to life, but raised to the right hand of God the Father. The King of Kings has taken his proper place. The King of Kings is on the throne of thrones. Every other king, every other lord, every other celebrity will one day bow before him, as will we. God vindicates Jesus, and in doing so, God the Father vindicates the way of Jesus. Paul, you remember when he writes to the Philippians and he comes to uh, chapter 2, he wants to urge them to love one another, to care for one another, to put each other's needs ahead of their own. And the way he does this is fascinating. He says, 
Uh, this is Philippians 2, verse 4. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So he wants them to love each other, to look out for each other, to make sure they've got their wee glasses of water before they stand to speak, and all these kind of things. And what he does is he presents to them the author and perfecter of their faith, the pioneer and perfecter of their faith. He presents to them their Lord, the way of Jesus. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So he tells them to make sure they're loving each other. He presents to them the way of Jesus. And then he reminds them of God, God the Father's take on the way of Jesus. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in the ascension God vindicates Jesus, his earthly life and ministry, and in so doing, he vindicates the way of Jesus, the example that Jesus sets for us. And so we ought to look to Christ, we ought to look to our Lord, and humble ourselves to love and to serve one another. And if the world thinks that's ridiculous and laughs at us, or rejects us, or betrays us, or abandons us, then we need not fear. We need not surrender to despondency or to despair, because that's exactly what they did first to Jesus. And he pressed on even to, to death on the cross, and God raised him up to life, to heaven, to his right hand on high. And his is the voice, his is the verdict that truly matters. We live in a world that craves popularity, uh, that, that, that just longs for five minutes of fame. I think my own generation is particularly enslaved to this. Maybe that's not the case. Maybe it just manifests itself in different ways in different generations. But uh, my own generation, we, we strive for more friends on Facebook and more likes on Instagram and more follows or retweets on Twitter. We long for people to pat us on the back. We carefully craft our internet image. We take a hundred pictures of ourselves and then get the best one and uh, you know put it through differently. I think I have this one in sepia. I look quite good in sepia. I'm a, my teeth look better that way, and we put up these pictures of our perfect houses and our perfect families and our perfect holidays and our perfect teeth, and we hope that the world looks at us and thinks, oh, what a wonderful life Ross has. I'd love to be like 
like him while clicking like or follow or whatever. We are enslaved to this, this longing for popularity in the eyes of the world. Then we, you know, we drag ourselves away from our smartphones, as painful as that is, and we sit down in front of the television and we watch other popularity con- uh, contests. We watch uh, Britain's Got Talent or The Voice or The X Factor, other people trying to be famous, trying to be popular, trying to be liked, trying to be loved by the world. We are enslaved to it. And the ascension ought to remind us that it doesn't really ultimately, I mean, it's nice to be popular. It's nice for people to appreciate you. It's nice for people to say, you know, I like your holiday in Centre Park, so I'm going to like your wee Facebook. That's fine, as long as we're not enslaved to it. And as long as we remember that ultimately it's not the world's opinion of us that matters most. It's God's opinion of us. It's His voice. It's His verdict. And often, the world's voice and the world's verdict stands in sharp opposition to God's voice and to God's verdict, and we must remember that. The ascension ought to remind us that what is weak and foolish in the eyes of the world may well be great and glorious in the eyes of heaven, and vice versa. So whose eyes are impressed by the way in which you are choosing to live your life? Is yours the way of Christ, or is it the way of the world? Are you building your life? Am I building my life on sand or on the rock? The ascension offers us a great challenge, but the ascension also ought to offer us great encouragement. It seems like a a strange, a silly thing to say, really, that, that Jesus being lifted out of the world ought to encourage his followers who are still in the world. We've probably all thought at some point in time, wouldn't it be wonderful if Jesus was still here, if I could meet him in the flesh, if I could have a face-to-face conversation with him in the way that the disciples did all those years ago, that would be great. Doubts would be banished. Fears would give way to faith. I would be a happier person. I would be a holier Christian. It would be wonderful if I could just have time with him in the flesh. And here am I saying that it's good news for us that Jesus ascended into heaven. It's good news for us that we can't have that time. We can sympathize with the disciples after Jesus told them that he was going to the Father. John tells us that they were filled with grief. Jesus says to them, it is for your good I am going away. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, listen, I've I've done my shift. I've had three years with you guys, and frankly, that's enough. Who could argue with him if that, that were what he had said? No one. But that's not what he says. He says, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So they're going to be given uh, 
or gifted something, someone, who will more than make up for Jesus leaving them in the flesh. They are going to be gifted the Holy Spirit. Jesus ascends on high, but He does not leave His people alone. The Spirit is poured out upon the church at Pentecost, and it was the Spirit, remember, that transformed these fearful disciples into fearless apostles. So I want to say two things about this. Firstly, it is better for us because Christ can dwell with all of His people all of the time. We do have the presence of Jesus by His Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Christ is with God, and yet Christ is also with His people. We read from Revelation chapter 1, in the morning Christ moves amongst the lampstands. What are the lampstands? The lampstands are the churches. Christ is with His people. We can even go so far as to say that Christ is within His people. Galatians 2.20, again, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live Christ lives in me. We can speak of Christ in us, the hope of glory. The King of kings is with us, just as He is with our brothers and sisters around the world on this Easter Sunday. We might think it would be great if if Jesus was in the world, in the flesh. We might think we could get a flight out to wherever He is to see Him. Maybe that would be true. Maybe it would be true for us. Two-thirds of the world would be too poor, I'm sure. But you'd have a certain special class of Christian, those who have a bit of money and can get a flight out to see Jesus wherever He is, those who maybe have friends in high places, those who are powerful, or those who are not afraid to barge their way in, like if you've been at the, you know, the sale at Next, you know, you have to get your elbows out and force your way to the front. Maybe those who are really forceful, if Jesus were here in the flesh, could find their way to the front of the queue and spend a few minutes with Him. Wouldn't that be better? Maybe manage a handshake, a brief word. Well, not according to Jesus Himself. One commentator says this. He says, if Jesus still walked among us, Who would trust his messengers? People would say, you're not holy until you've actually met and talked to Jesus himself. Then he says this, but we can meet him through the word he left us and the imperfect fellow believers in whom he has made himself at home. We have his words and we have his spirit. And that is more than enough. The reality is, if we do not believe His Word, then it would make no difference to us where He here in the flesh. It's like the story that Jesus told of Lazarus and, uh, you know, the rich man who dies and he wants someone to go back from death to tell his relatives. And Abraham's response is, uh, they have Moses and the prophets. And if they don't believe them, they won't believe anything. Jesus then comments on this story he's told, and he says the same thing. Moses and the prophets, i.e., they have the Hebrew Scriptures. They have the Bible. If they don't believe the Bible, if they don't believe the Word of God, then even if someone rises from the dead, it will be to no avail. 
We have God's words. We have God's Spirit. We have the Spirit of Christ Jesus, and that is more than enough. The King is with us by His Spirit, and what a King. What a King. I like the Queen. I saw the Queen today in television briefly. Um, she was wearing, the BBC lady told me, spring, a spring-like shade of turquoise. It just looked like blue-green to me, but it was a spring-like shade, whatever that is, of turquoise that she was wearing, and she was going about her queenly duties. And I think she does those duties very well, and I think she has done for many, many years. Uh, I don't think you could ask much more of her, frankly. But I've never met her. There are 60 million people in her kingdom, so it would be asking a bit much for her to meet us all, and if she did, how would she remember me? How could I really expect her to remember me or to care for me when she has 59 million 999,999 other people to meet and to remember and to care for. I would think, especially in her old age, it would be a bit much to ask. Well, what a king we have in Jesus. He knows each of us personally. He doesn't just know us. He loves us. I think it was Augustine who said he loves us as if there were only us to love. He cares for us. He shepherds us. He leads us. He guards us. He guides us. He lived for us in the midst of the mess of our sin-saturated world. He died for us on the cross. He conquered death for us, and now by His Spirit, He journeys with us. By His Spirit, He is with us. By His Spirit, He is within us. He will never fail us, nor forsake us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. What a King. We have His presence. No matter what we are facing, no matter what we have to go through, Christ the King, Christ our King, is with us. We have His presence, and secondly, we have His power. Power to be faithful, power to be His ambassadors, power to be His heralds in the world. We may not feel very powerful, but nevertheless, we have His Spirit within us, and so we are able to trust and to obey. Why do we need that power? We need that power because as soon as Jesus told His followers that all authority on heaven and earth had been given to Him, He then told them to go, to go in His name and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are the King's ambassadors, and we are the King's heralds. We are told to go with His message, to go with good news to the ends of the earth, even into the streets of Airdrie, to let people know the great invitation, the good news of the gospel. And if we are to have the courage to be faithful, if we are to have the joy of being fruitful, then we must have the power of the Spirit working within us. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria 
and to the ends of the earth. That's us. That's here too. The ends of the earth. It's a high and it's a holy calling. It's a costly calling. But there is joy in serving King Jesus. There is joy in seeing the Spirit work. There is joy in serving Him as we look forward to that day when Christ will come just as He went and maybe be found faithful and fruitful when that day does come. Jesus has been vindicated. The way of Jesus has been vindicated. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church, and we can go into the world, to the very ends of the earth, with His presence and His power to make His great name known, all because of the ascension. Let's rejoice together as we stand to sing.